Dirty animal! I've been in the danger zone. And once you figure out how the, the key to understanding all of this, all of a sudden the whole world opens up to you and you say, oh, now I see why there were a twin towers in New York. New York, the Empire State. You need to do some homework on the term twin tower and find out that it goes back to Jacob and Boaz of the of the Phoenician Canaanite. All throughout Europe, churches all had twin towers. You better go back and find out what is connected to New York and how New York comes from the York Rite in England. There's a very sinister, frightening, interesting symbolism that has been imposed upon this country, and the people have no idea in the world what's going on. Begin to see how magical use of words and terms and symbols are used. You need to start looking at the world of the occult and politics and religion. Uh, isn't that strange? We were talking about the president, and all of a sudden we got cut off. If you can make your voice heard, you can stand up for these things. You can speak out on these things. And people are going to listen. People are going to hear you. And you can affect change. You can make things happen. You can, you can improve the world. You can make the world a better place. That's my motivation. I can stand up for these things that I believe in. I can stand up. I can, I can speak out, and I will be heard. I can change the world. Of course I would support him. Um, I think he was, he was frankly the best candidate for the job. Let's be honest, there's very few politicians who are as straightforward, uh, as straight, I would say straight shooters, as Jesse is. And so 100% I think mean, he would be the best man for the former president, of course. You would not even know about the secret societies. You would not even know about the Illuminati. You would not know anything about the world conspiracy. <laughs> and welcome back to another special edition of the michael deacon program thanks for pressing play as usual welcome back i can't believe you're still here here we go again my guest this evening is kevin randall a retired lieutenant colonel he has appeared on countless radio and television programs since the 1990s and with me now is kevin randall how are you sir i'm fine how are you i'm good very good. good. I know, you can see my face, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I like that. And uh, I see you there, you look great there, and you're in your display photo too. <laughs> yeah. It's a great color on you. Somebody's got to have a display photo, I suppose. I know, it's just the logo, by the way, folks, and it's just the eyeball looking at Mr. Kevin Randall here. He's got to be uncomfortable. Uh, not really, no. Not really? Yeah. Not very I'm intimidating. Not comfortable at all. What's funny is some guests that have been on, they see the logo and they get the wrong idea. I can see that. Yes, I can understand why they might. It's just the logo, though. Yes, I know. Yes, but you know how some folks are. But anyways, it's a honor and pleasure to talk to you once again. And of course, the last time we talked, things were a little crazy with the world. And that hasn't really stopped at all. It seems that um, the world has got even more bizarre and even crazier, Kevin. I know. And I'm just thinking, let's go, Brandon. Right. And everything's good with you, right, Mr. Randall? No, no one is sick in your family, none of your friends or anything of that sort with the devil's flu, as they call it. Well, I... 
I, my brother-in-law had it a long time ago, and he's fine. So, and you are still fighting strong out there. We're doing we're doing fine out here. Yes, right on. Well, I caught COVID twice, and I'm fine. I didn't do anything to prevent it or to cure it. It just sort of magically went away. Well, uh, what can I tell you? I haven't caught it. Uh, I know one person who's had it, and. Everything else is just sailing along. I'm a super spreader, Kevin, so I can't be around you. (laughs) Fortunately, we're doing social distancing here. Okay, that's good. Don't want to be a COVID spreader, even though the vaccinated seem to be the ones that are killing people off, in my opinion. I don't think the um, statistics bear that out. Probably not, but in my mind it is. Oh, well, (laughs) can't help you with that one, then. Yes, I'm just going to pretend that that's what's going on. All right. Yes, we're going to rock it that way here tonight. Well, I have uh, been around the UFO field for like ever. I I like to say I, I've known practically everybody, starting with um, Don Kehoe and uh, the Lorenzins and some of those people. And uh, I've met practically everybody in the field at one time or another. I say practically one time or another. Former military pilot, aircraft commander from Vietnam. I spent a tour in Iraq as an intelligence officer. I've been to uh, a number of schools, including um, University of Iowa, which I think tanked today in the football game. I believe they did, yes. And, uh, well, they made it to number two before they tanked, anyhow. And then uh, I was at California Coast and American Military University, have a PhD in psychology and a couple of master's degrees in various things, and have written a number of books about UFOs. And have spent a great deal of time investigating UFOs, uh, from the Roswell case to some of the other prominent cases in the world. We've got a book coming out in March, I believe, on the Leveland sightings and an updated version of the Project Moondust book with a lot of additional new information in it. So that's what I've been doing. Very nice. Uh, which came out a couple of years ago. I did Encounter in the Desert about the Socorro Landing with Lonnie Zamora and, and discovered some interesting things about that case that hadn't been well publicized. Uh, just last year, maybe earlier this year, came out with a book called The Best of Project Blue Book, which unfortunately, uh, if you go to my blog at uh, kevinrandall.blogspot.com and can't, Type in uh, La Campo, L-A-L-C-A-M-P-O, La Campo. It's a case reported to Blue Book, and it would have been in this book had I found it earlier, but it's a physical evidence case where they collected debris, possible debris. They collected uh, soil samples and things from a landing or sort of a, a touchdown or a crash-type scenario in Louisiana back in 1960, and the Blue Book case is unidentified. It's kind of an interesting case that takes us beyond, uh, you know, just lights in the sky type thing. There's physical evidence. There's multiple witnesses. It's a very interesting case that's sort of escaped everybody's attention. Oh, yes. There's lots of cases that seem to do that, to be honest. We need to look at cases um, in a historical context, of course. But I'm thinking of of, uh, going beyond just the preliminaries. And that's kind of where I am on this case. I've got the Blue Book file. I've uh, looked at it in depth, but there's other things that need to be checked out. And I think that's where we are in a lot of cases. We get an awful lot of superficial investigations, especially from the Air Force when they were doing it, because they didn't want to find anything, apparently. But um, there's often times that you can go beyond that. And with the Internet today, you can do an awful lot of important research from from uh, from your home. You don't have to get out into the field. 
You can find witnesses. You can talk to them face to face. Right. Through through Skype or Zoom meetings or something like that. And I've always I, I had said for a long time when we were doing the Roswell investigation, I was going to interview Sheridan Cabot at last. And everybody said, why? And I said, because I want to watch his body language. I want to see how he responds to questions Mm. and things like that. And there came a point where we had met him in Sierra Vista, Arizona, which is right outside of Fort Huachuca, which is, I think, a lot of the Army's intelligence schools are there. And he was wandering down there in the early 1990s. And Don and I, Don Schmidt and I, were sitting in his apartment with him, talking to him. And Don was kind of chatting with his wife. And I was talking to Cabot. And... As he was sort of relaxed, and I said something about the alien bodies. Mm, and he yes. looked at me, and he got nervous, and he leaned forward, and he picked up a magazine. He leaned back and threw the magazine down. Did Bill Rickett tell you that? So clearly, I touched a nerve, and I was trying to protect Rickett. So I said, no, Edwin Easley told me that. And he relaxed immediately, and I knew I'd blown it. I shouldn't have said anything like that at all. But I was trying to protect Lewis Rickett because I didn't want to get Rickett in trouble with his former boss. Uh, and Rickett provided us with a lot of good information. So uh, it was a, a, an avenue, a conduit that we wanted to keep open. But, I mean, the, the point simply is, you know, sometimes you want to see the witness. You want to watch their body language. You want to see how they react to questions. And you, and you can do some of that uh, through the um, your, your cell phone or without seeing them. You can pick up nuances in the voices or how they hesitate or how they answer questions. With, do they directly uh, answer the question, or do they throw it back at you? Do they kind of beat around the bush? You know, use weasel words, as they say, uh, to describe the thing. So there's things you can do, but you know, that's uh, kind of where we are. A lot of this stuff is looking for. Oh, you might have um, cut off there a little bit. Kind of recap. I was just suggesting that there are things that we can do with the internet today that we yes. couldn't do. I got that part. Ago. Yes, you were talking about the body language and how important it is. And, you know, you're absolutely correct. You know, when you go to these conferences, you can always look at the presenter and sort of get a good feeling if they either are telling a genuine story or if they just rehearsed for a number of hours behind the mirror. Don Don Schmidt and I were doing a presentation in uh, California, and it was just a private presentation. Roy Finnis was there, which was kind of cool because, you know, he did The Invaders. Yes, sir. Uh, And and he was there... um, the guy we were doing it with, he knew Roy Thinnis. I think Don knows Roy Thinnis. I, I met Roy Thinnis in um, Roswell a number of years ago as well. But we were doing a presentation, and we were just sort of talking off the cuff. And when we got done, somebody said to us, you guys are too well rehearsed. Mm. And I'm thinking, we hadn't rehearsed a word. We just ran with the sort of the, the stream of consciousness. Yeah, I, I get that too. Yeah, I can understand. Uh, but some people you can sort of tell when it's um a little, if it's a bit of a facade, I should say. Well, and look at the story they're telling. Um, I don't know how people would believe these guys who suggest that they were abducted from their homes, fought for 20 years on Mars in some kind of war between um, the humans and aliens, and we're siding with some aliens and we're and all of that stuff, and then a return to their home, and they've only been gone for 15 minutes. Why would you believe that? That's a little hard to, yeah, that's a little hard to sort of fully get behind. I, I think, you know, do you have any evidence? Do you have any photographs? Do you have uh, anything that you picked up on Mars? I mean, did you stomp on the rover while you were there? Um, anything at all that would suggest that what you're saying is the truth, and they, we, we just have to accept their word for it. And we run into the same things with people with their military background, suggesting they've done this, that, and the other thing. And when you say, well, you know, your records don't reflect that, well, my records have been changed. Or right. the schools that I went to are classified. Well, there are no classified schools. 
uh, I mean, titles of school. I, I went to uh, one school uh, with the DIA in uh, Washington, D.C., and you had to have a top clearance to attend the school. But the name of the school is in my records. Yeah. It doesn't tell you what I learned in the school. It merely tells you that I was in attendance mm. at the school at that at this time. So um, and I, I think that what kind of tripped up Robert uh, Willingham, who claimed to have uh, seen a crashed UFO near Del Rio, Texas, back in the well, originally in 1948, and then in 1950, and finally into the mid 1950s, it kept changing the date. But I attempted to get his record through St. Louis and found out that he had been in the Army for uh, 13 months. He was technically a veteran of World War II. He entered the Army in December of 1945 after the shooting had all stopped. But the war wasn't declared officially over until 1946, so technically he was a veteran of World War II. Um, rose to the rank of E4, very low-ranked enlisted soldier, and uh, nobody bothered to check his record. And because uh, he'd signed an affidavit attesting to the validity of what he was saying, and nobody bothered checking his record. Yeah, and I was, most people and I was one that was fooled by him as well. In the in the nineteen nineteen nineties, I did a book called A History of UFO Crashes, and his story's in there with his affidavit. But as I was updating all of that material, I was doing another book called Crash When UFOs Fall from the Sky. I thought, well, let's see what's new with uh, Robert Willingham. So I typed his name into the Google search engine and came up with all kinds of information and discovered the story had been radically altered. By the way, uh, Mr. Randall, I forgot to tell you this earlier, but uh, thank you for serving the country, by the way. Oh, thank you. Oh, yes. Thank you for your service. I'm sure many people out there um, would be thanking you right now, by the way. And of course, you know, you were you were in Vietnam as a helicopter pilot. And aircraft commander. Yes, that's I was. right. And but, I, and by I the way, the few people who managed to blow up a helicopter on a landmine. <laughs> nice. I want to ask you more about that. But before I do, you know, there was a a um, previous interview and we sort of talked about Vietnam now that I remember um, that, you know, you and you, in fact, were there in, in, in Vietnam. And, you know, I sort of asked the guest this this uh, notion that some people say that we lost that war in Vietnam. Um, you know, as someone who was there personally, what are your thoughts and opinions uh, initially when you hear something like that? Well, I tell everybody we were winning when I left, mm -hmm. but um, we didn't lose the war. It was given away at the bargaining tables. Yeah, that's and, what and, I say. As what happened in Afghanistan, we really didn't lose that. We gave it away. We gave it away. And, and in Vietnam, we were not, and I say we as a nation, we're not prepared to um, – Fight it to its fullest. If you're not prepared to win the war, if you're not prepared to fight the war, then there's no business in sending American soldiers, American Marines, American airmen, American sailors into the into a, con, a combat environment. And I think that was the problem. Um, the news media was not our friends in Vietnam. Nope. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, during Tet of '68, which is there was a uh, an attack on Saigon, of course, but the the, the place where it was. The heaviest fighting went on was in the Cholon province, uh, Cholon district of, of Saigon, which was the Chinese area. And the Vietnamese and the Chinese are historical enemies. So the, 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 the Vietnamese during, during Tet of 68 played a little catch up and uh, went into that and was setting things on fire. I mean, it's kind of like when you see cities in the United States on fire. It's not the entire city on fire. It's one small part of it. But the reporters all went there so they could do their stand-ups in front of a flaming building and make it look like they're in, in, in real danger there. And there was a lot of that kind of thing going on, and the reporting the reporting was not as accurate as it could have been. I know in Ted of 68, 
Um, the news media is saying, boy, we were caught off guard. And I'm thinking, yeah, you guys were, but the military wasn't. Uh, Earl Weaver, who was the chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff, had attended a national funeral in Australia in 1967, prior to TED. And he told an audience there that we expected, meaning the U.S. Army, expected uh, some kind of uh, attack during the TED of, during TED of 68. He, he predicted there would be attack. The um, first Arvin Division, I think, called all its soldiers back. Um, they had been on leave for the Tet holidays, and they called them all back. And a great number of American soldiers were redeployed into the central areas of Vietnam so that they could respond to the attacks in a quicker fashion. But the news media was sitting there going, well, we were completely surprised. And boy, it was a great defeat for the Americans. No, um, the Viet Cong ceased to exist at the end of that uh, Tet of 68, and the, the fighting was taken over then by the North Vietnamese. Um, it was a, a great tactical and strategic defeat for the the bad guys, the other side, uh, until the news media and some people turned it into a psychological victory. And I'm thinking as a commander, if I don't care about casualties, if I don't care about my soldiers or anything like that, I can take any any place you tell me to take. I can I can storm the walls. I can get inside. I can take the place. I may not be able to hold it. But I can do that if I don't care about the casualties, if I don't care about the cost. And I think that was kind of the um, the communist attitude in, in, in Tet. They didn't care about the cost as long as they could make a, a big uh, stink about it. Uh, and then in Tet of 69, which was a, another big attack, uh, the news media just sort of ignored it. And uh, the, the Vietnamese... You know, took uh, the North Vietnamese took another beating at that, but what you got in the news media was something completely and totally different, which is which is uh, wrong. You can go back and look at the history, and there was a I read a an article I read a, in a book. One of the senior advisors in Washington D.C., a civilian senior advisor to the president, was interviewed. And he says, well, the generals are telling us that, that, you know, it's, it's, it's going well. You know, there's not a big problem. And what are we supposed to think when the whole country's on fire? Right. And he's basing it. He's basing it on the reports he's seeing on television. He's believing the reporters rather yeah. than um, the generals and the ambassador and the people uh, from the administration on the ground in Vietnam at the time. So it's just uh, that sort of thing. But the, that's my long involved answer. The other thing I will say, which will piss off everybody. <laughs> Is, is that um, the student protest did not shorten the war, kept it going. Had it not been for that, two things would have happened that did not. Uh, I think the administration, be it Johnson or Nixon, would have pressed the war a little bit stronger, provided exactly what was needed, and it provided uh, a message to the the um, the opposition, the enemy, that if they hung on long enough, we'd pack up and go home, which is exactly what we did. Yes. And by the way, how old were you when you first returned from Vietnam, by the way, Kevin? I think the important point is how old was I when I got there? Or yeah, how old were you when you got there, rather? I'm sorry. 19. You were only 19. Holy hell. I was, a, I, and I was an aircraft commander at 19. Man, that's crazy. What, what a different world. That's a completely different world than uh, what we have today, for sure. No question. Well, the difference, the difference then was, of course, there was a draft. I wasn't drafted. But I didn't um, – uh, our family situation was such that I was not uh, capable of going to college and so couldn't have gotten a deferment. And 
I'd learned that the Army was training high school graduates. Oh, okay. To fly helicopters. So I said, yeah, sign me up. You si- Yeah, sign me up. And, and, and so mm-hmm. – um, because I, I'd learned that you don't walk when you can ride and you don't ride when you can fly. So you don't, you don't uh, walk through Vietnam, you fly over it. So that was kind of my attitude. Love that. But I was 19 when I got there. I was an aircraft commander at 19. Uh, if I remember correctly, I blew up the helicopter on a landmine. No, I was, I think I was 20 when I blew up the helicopter. How did that, how did that turn out? Uh, just fine, obviously. You were well, good. If you remember, remember the old 12 o'clock high show from the mid 60s? Well, you may not remember. That, you can watch yes. it on one of the, you can watch it on YouTube. Yes. I, I do, I do know what you're talking about though. Continue. But the, um, the thing was, uh, a friend of mine, we were on the swim team. Uh, during that, and we'd be riding the buses to the the meets and place like the, the back of the bus is bouncing around, and we're we're kind of screwing like like we're flying B seventeens in combat during World War Two. And I'm thinking, eighteen months later, I'm blowing up a helicopter. Wow! In combat, and I'm I got it out of the LZ. We we landed in the LZ. It was a um, it was an anti tank mine, which was fortunate for us. Because if it had been an anti personnel mine, we'd have been really screwed. Yeah. But uh, anti tank mine is designed to blow a hole in the bottom of the tank and the pr- overpressure from the explosion kills everybody inside. Well, we were in an open cockpit, so we didn't have that problem. It went off right under the nose. It really damaged the nose and broke pedals on one side and broke all the glass, the plexiglass. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I- I'm sitting there and, and somebody's saying, we know where the RPGs are coming from. Well, it wasn't an RPG. And I'm figuring if they were that close with the first one, I don't want to hang around with the second one. And the flight was taken off, so I joined. I was I took off with the flight, and uh, as I'm joining the flight, I'm thinking, you know, we're going to a PZ to pick up more soldiers. And I don't think anybody's going to want to get on this aircraft because it's all beat up. So I took it to Kuchi, which was the closest airfield, and I got to I got to, <laughs> I got to call the tower and say, you know, uh, I think it was I think it was Hornet six eight six. I think the tail number was six eight six, and I said, uh, you know, extensive combat damage. Uh, looking for a straight in and the tower says, are you declaring an emergency? And I'm thinking, yeah, didn't I just say that? <laughs> you know, we made an emergency landing there. I don't think the aircraft ever flew again after I got it to Kuchi. Probably not. Probably but, not. Well, sometimes you can repair them, but not that one. Um, but I mean, uh, the other thing was I was like 19 or 20 years old when that happened. So I you must have really been, a, you must have been scared. No, not at all. I, no, I was busy flying the airplane and I would, I thought about this later. In the combat environments that we found ourselves in, that we were so busy flying the airplanes, the aircraft, the, the helicopters, and we were so well trained that fear never entered the, the picture, at no, least in my mind. No I, never, time to I be, never thought of it. Yeah, no time to be scared. I was The only time I was really nervous, that's how we say scared, by the way. Yes, sir. Was uh, during the first mortar attack I was in, because they didn't oh. know what to expect. And uh, after that, we got so blasé, we'd... You know, they, we'd listen to see if they were coming toward us or moving away from us because they always, you know, you could hear them marching in or something like that. And uh, if they weren't coming toward us, you didn't even that, bother going to the in, bunker. That's intense, by the way. I could only, I can't even imagine what that must have been no, like we for you. Intense. We weren't intense. We were in ho- hooches. That's a little joke. Get it? I hear you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Love that. And by the way, when you when you did return back to America – um, what was that like for you the, as your first initial reaction to, you know, all the hoopla going on? We, um, I got, I got back on a Saturday afternoon late in the day and, uh, I'm trying to remember we, if I was in civilian clothes or not, mm-hmm. but it was at the San Francisco International Airport. We, we came into Travis Air Force Base and they bust us up to 
San Francisco International Airport. Oh shit! Pardon my French, but yes, that's. But, that's but right I there. don't. I don't know. I I remember standing in line, and there was a flight to Denver. The last flight that night to Denver. I lived in Denver, Colorado. My home of record was Denver, Colorado. And I asked the people in front of me. I said, you know, can I? My my plane's going to leave. Can I? Can I move up in line? And they wouldn't let me do that. Mm. And then after uh, I got a ticket for the next morning, I, I, I'm. One around the airport, and I'm thinking, you know, maybe I ought to call somebody and tell them, hey, I'm home safely. <laughs> I know. But I, 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 we stayed all overnight in the, um, the USO in, uh, at the airport, and the next morning I, f I flew on home. But um, I didn't really have anybody yelling at me. The only thing that was – they just wouldn't let me move up in the line. Cause, oh, I see. Uh, and I think – I don't remember. I, I, I got on the airplane in Saigon, actually at um, – Benoit in jungle fatigues, and the the plane wasn't full as we left. We left Vietnam, but almost everybody else was in a, a class A or class B uniform, and I'm in jungle fatigues. And uh, the the stewardess were really nice to me, and I I figured that after after many years of contemplating this, that they were nice to me not because I was in jungle fatigues, but but I was so young, they figured I was of no danger to them, like some of the other people on the airplane. Yeah, they probably thought you were just some kid. Yeah. So anyway, um, the uh, we landed in Tokyo. I wandered around in the airport there for two or three hours, and we landed in Alaska somewhere, and I don't remember where, maybe Fairbanks, maybe Juneau, I don't know, and then went into Travis. When I came back from, from um, Iraq, it was completely different. Uh, we got into Bangor, Maine at 6 o'clock in the morning, I think it was, and there was a whole bunch of people there to greet us. Oh, that's right. You were also deployed to Iraq. Yeah. And we got back, and, uh, and as the intelligence officer, I'm thinking, you know, we're not really supposed to be telling anybody where we are because, you know, terrorism. <laughs> yes. And, uh, and these people were handing us cell phones to call home. <laughs> so, oh, that's not a good idea. And I think, yeah, I'm going to stop our soldiers from calling home because I'm worried about a terrorist attack on the airplane. And they handed me one, and I called my wife. And, and she answered the face like 5 o'clock in the morning where, where she was, woke her up. And she, she didn't say hello. She just says, are you at Fort Riley? <laughs> and I said, no, but I'm in Bangor, Maine. We'll be in Fort Riley later this afternoon. So, But it was a completely different experience um, coming back from that. And everybody was really nice to us. And then when we got home to our home station here in Iowa, uh, they had a big ceremony welcoming us back at the local minor league baseball team, Diamond. And there were a whole bunch of people there, dignitaries welcoming, welcoming, welcoming us back to the world. And then the really funny thing is I normally have a, had a steak on Saturday night at, at home. And I would cook it myself and it would bake potato. And I got home on a Saturday night and uh, had my steak and potato. Nice. It's like nothing changed. Just fit right back into the groove. Very good. You just, yeah, just right back to normal. That's awesome. And um, by the way, we Mm, go we ahead. didn't have a whole lot of combat experience in Iraq. Uh, we were combat support as opposed to aviation in, in Vietnam, which was uh, direct combat. So, you know, I think uh, we had more mortars in one night at Tain In than we had all the whole time we were in Iraq. So That's still pretty you. wild. Yeah. Regardless, that's that's pretty, um, pretty wild stuff there. You have lived um, some life there, Mr. Randall. Well, I think everybody's had a chance to do this, but a lot of people opted out of it and now claim to have done it. Uh, yeah, a lot of people claim to have, did, have done it, but, you know, that's lots of um, people out there guilty of stolen valor. Yeah, I, the thing that struck me is um, I think at 
the, I think the Army had said, the Army, the, the Department of Defense said at one point there were 2.5 million Vietnam veterans, meaning meaning men and women who had served in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the women in Vietnam were mainly nurses. There were a handful of, of other skills that the women had that they were in Vietnam, but the vast majority, of course, it was, was men. But there was two and a half million. And at one point, there was a survey taken um, in, in 1995, and one of the questions on this survey was, were you a Vietnam veteran? Like 13 million said yes. Interesting. So, I had no idea. There's a lot of people who were claiming, claiming Vietnam service who didn't, yeah. who didn't actually deploy. Well, I mean, I guess that's what uh, went on with the last election. Well, let me say one thing before we <laughs> go, to, go in that direction. Yes, sir. I have, a, I have another blog besides my UFO one. It's called VietnamGroundZero.blogspot.com. And a friend of mine, Bob Corden, and I had written a series of books about called Vietnam Ground Zero, cleverly, back in uh, the 1980s. Oh, I like that. And they're being republished. They're being republished by a, by an English publisher, which is great because the books are really nice looking. Oh, okay. uh, the point of this is to kind of promote it. I, did, I started a blog called uh, VietnamGroundZero.com, uh, Blogspot.com. I'm sorry. And these are kind of my my war stories. And I say it's a relatively true stories of my year in Vietnam. And the way, reason I say that is I had told people for years that we left our Thanksgiving meal in the serving line at Kuchi because we the, the flight crews were scrambled. And I was going through the letters I'd sent home and I discovered the letter about Thanksgiving. And I was we weren't at Kuchi. We had, we had actually been deployed, I think, to Tain In because there was some kind of mission going on and we'd moved the aircraft from Kuchi to Tain In. To support this mission, and we and we were given our, our Thanksgiving meal there. Actually, we weren't given given it; we had to pay for it. Uh, but there were times when we were in the mess hall, or we were in the serving line, and the flight crews were scrambled. So you left the meal on the table, and you left it in the serving line, and you just ran out to the aircraft. Sometimes we didn't uh, we didn't even get back to Kuchi for a meal. We we had it on the aircraft sea rations. Uh, pound cake was great for those of you who remember this. The pound cake was great, uh, and if you were and if you had were released and on kind of an ash and trash mission, you would uh, try to get to Na Bay because the Navy ran that and they had really good food. So you take your lunch at Na Bay if you could get down there to do that. And so, um, by the way, did you get a pair of Vietnam uh, rubber tire sandals? No. You weren't lucky enough to get your own pair. I didn't want them. Did you see any soldiers um, doing that? Making them? And well, not making them, but just you know, maybe taking them away from someone that had you know passed. Well, most 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 of the souvenirs like that were made by the GIs in the combat environment to 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 fool the other people. You want to buy a, you know Viet Cong sandals. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. I did, that is interesting. And um, by the way, always you know you hear so many stories of that, and of course you hear stories of alcohol and drug use. Are any of these stories true, or are they a bit fabricated? Well, I. Remember being drunk once or twice. Well, nothing wrong with that. We had a, we had a guy at Tain Inn that was really acting weird one day. We couldn't figure it out until we discovered he was sober. <laughs> We've never seen him sober. I see. Um, was there drug use? Yes. Was it as prevalent as the news media would like you to believe? No. I wouldn't think so. Uh, yeah. We had, um, and this really annoyed me because uh, I was I was a ward officer, so I was on the officer side of the of the compound. And one morning they woke us all up and we had to go through the enlisted soldiers' quarters to find drugs, oh. to look for drugs. Oh, wow. And I thought, this is really a great way to build a team. Let's have the officers 
seeing if we can get the, the enlisted guys into trouble. Yeah. Uh, but I don't, I don't remember us finding anything at all. And I think it was because we didn't really look real hard either. Because <laughs> these were yes. the guys we had to count on. You know, and they had to count on us. We had to count on them. We had to build a team. We had to, we had to trust one another. So that was not a good thing to do. But I didn't really notice a lot of that sort of thing. And the atrocities you see in the movies that they talk about, I didn't see any of that. I know, I know that uh, Miley took place. I also know a helicopter pilot stopped it, which I was kind of happy to see. Um, what about fragging? Um, I, Told it happened. In fact, there was a, a story when we were in Iraq, not Iraq. We were we we were still in um, mm-hmm. in uh, Qatar, not Qatar, um, Kuwait. And there was a story on the news about um, some soldier had gone nuts and walked into a uh, the tactical operations center and shot two or three officers. Yikes! But we didn't we, we didn't see any of it. I didn't see any. That's of good. That, that. It yeah, happen. sure it happened, but I didn't see it. And I don't think it was prevalent as the news media would like you to believe or the. Hollywood like you to believe people go crazy though that's that is a fact but yeah I'm sure it's a bit more exaggerated in the news and the media and the way it's glamorized for sure but did it happen of course people lose their minds all the time well we and well I mean when we got back to the states um now I was I was now a commissioned officer and uh, had a much higher higher position from from Iraq when we got back from Iraq and at the Joint Forces Headquarters for the National Guard here in Iowa, um, we were, a bunch of us were armed all the time. And uh, my wife asked me one day, why Why are you guys armed? Mm. And then Fort Hood happened, and I said, now you know. <laughs> right, exactly. That's why. People lose it sometimes, you know? You never really know. It's, it's like, it's it like was, the- it was the guys who were armed full-time mm-hmm. like that were um, the senior officers and the senior NCOs. It, you know, it wasn't it wasn't the lower ranking officers. It wasn't the lower ranking enlisted soldiers. It was the um, senior officers and the and the senior NCOs. And I think I might have been the last soldier in the United States Army to carry a forty five. Wow. We were well, we were armed with our own weapons, our personal weapons. And I had forty. I carried a, a 1911 A1 45 caliber automatic pistol, ACP. And the. Um, a lot of the other guys had nine millimeters. They were carrying nine millimeters. I carried a forty-five because I had one. So I thought it was kind of cool. That is pretty cool, actually. Yeah, it's a good gun. Good little handgun there. Yes. Well, I wanted that as opposed to my three fifty-seven because um, you can reload the forty-five faster. That's right. And yeah. um, and if you want to talk another story, yeah, before sure. we deployed to Vietnam, we had to go to the range to qualify with pistols, and we all qualified for with forty-fives on the range. Got to Vietnam and they issued us 38s. And then the standard um, load for the 38, your standard, the standard they gave you was uh, 21 rounds. So you could reload your pistol three and a half times. And you say, why 21 rounds? And they said, because it was geared for the 45. They'd give you three magazines and it would hold seven rounds. Anyway. Well, not like that here in California. I heard California sank into the ocean. It it almost has to be honest. It's getting close. It's getting close. Well, we can only hope. <laughs> uh, Sorry, I know. Don't mean that California. There's some very nice people in California. I know. I'm actually in California myself. You know, there's some places here that you know are still all about freedom, but um, we're still we're well, we're getting a lot less of that nowadays, especially out here. Um, yes, we are succumbing to the new um woke order. 
I think I think well in California you might not have reversed it, but I think in a lot of the country it's kind of going away. People are making a lot of fun of the woke mentality, and rightly so. And that's why we often say, "Let's go, Brandon." It's um quite it's quite strange to see what has happened with um the world. To be honest, it's it's changed overnight. It seems uh, things have slipped away from us. I think. Yeah, um, the world has changed so many times, especially since um Vietnam. Since that incident, look how much the culture has changed. Well, I was watching the movie uh, In Like Flint just just the other day. And they had the one place where they would freeze your body and they, you know, so you could, you could wake up in the future. And they say, you know, think of what the world's going to be like 50 years in the future. And I'm thinking, I'm living in that world. Now. Yeah. Not a very, <laughs> from, from not the time a, the movie was made till they said that I'm actually living in that world. So I'm thinking, how has it changed since 1966 when this movie was made or 1967 when this movie was made? And one of the changes is you and I discussing this over the internet. I know. <laughs> Well, yesterday's problems are still here today. Uh, we've managed to magnify them. Pretty much. It just seems that it's, it's all a, a huge cycle. I mean, you were back, you know, you were deployed in 2003, and it's almost like we're back in 2002 almost. Well, we don't have any soldiers uh, deployed into recognized combat arenas. I have to, I have to say that theater, theaters of operations. There are soldiers deployed into areas that could be hot quickly. Yeah, and the other thing we have to remember is the Korean War is not over. Yeah, there's some DOD um, folks out there that do listen to the show that are on missions now overseas. Well, I mean, but the point is the Korean War never ended. There was a there was a ceasefire and they've never been a formalized peace settlement. So technically the Korean War is still going on. You know, I did hear someone say that before, but um, you're the second person to say that to me. Yeah, that's because we pay attention. So we know these things. Well, not many people are paying attention. Um, that's the that's the bad thing about, I, I would say, American uh, culture. You know, the lights are on, but no one's home. I think I think that's changing uh, subtly, slowly, slightly. As people are realizing what's going on. There was an interesting thing I saw the other day. It's been on the mainstream media too, where they were asking college students about diversity and suggesting, do you think that admissions to college should be based on a diversity so that you have a a proportionate number of people from each ethnic and racial group on campus. And the students were saying, yeah, that's a good idea. We should do that. And then they switched it up and said, well, what, you know, what about on sports? Should you, should you uh, base it on diversity? And they, they were thinking about that. And he said, uh, well, no, it should be based on skill and merit. Because uh, we want our teams to win and <laughs> that sort of thing. And I think, it would just, don't you understand that that's the way it should be all the way through is on merit, equal opportunity for everybody, but don't select based on immutable qualities, but in fact, base it on the skill of the individual, um, which I think was kind of Martin Luther King's idea. Yeah. And we and we've moved away from that, and it's kind of kind of appalling. But I think we're beginning to move back. I think some people are beginning to see, you know, everybody should have an equal opportunity. We should we should give everybody an equal opportunity. We should do the best we can to provide them with the tools to be successful in life. But even with that, we don't. You can't guarantee 
an equal outcome from everybody because you're going to have people with different skills and different abilities. And although they may have the training and the tools, they may not be able to use them as well as somebody else. So yeah, and now that I'm going to be canceled for all of that, I'm sure. No, don't worry. It's, it's very true, though. <laughs> you didn't say anything that is controversial at all, to be honest. I mean, if this was uploaded on YouTube, um, you would not be um, hit with hate speech or anything of that nature. So you'll be okay. Well, the, other, the other thing that's come up recently is they're talking about thought crimes. Oh, my. Yes. The thought and police. I'm thinking, has anybody read 1984 lately? I was worried about it when they started talking about hate crimes, but now we're talking about people's thoughts being criminalized. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, we're in 1984. Took us a while to get here, but we've made it. Yeah, it took us a while, but here we are, and it's uh, it's really something else, though. You know, uh, I, I remember, <laughs> and one of the things, this is from, from the Army in the past, uh, or maybe it's the, uh, yeah, it's, I guess it's the police, actually. They used to have nightsticks, but now they're drill batons. Yes. Because nightstick has, a, I guess, a violent connotation to it, but a drill baton is something different. Yeah, there are some differences, no doubt. And yes, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, yes, that, that's not allowed anymore. Now they're so replaced. Anyway. Yeah, now they're replaced by like this metal rod. Uh, well, they had that in, in like Flint too. They pushed a button and the two metal pieces came out. It's kind of interesting. I don't want to be hit by either one, to be honest. But I digress. Uh, we digress. <laughs> yes, but we digress indeed. Um, but going back well, anyway, for people who want to know more about my Vietnam experiences yes. and, and a little bit of that. And I try to keep it from getting too controversial, but here's what I observed and what I did in Vietnam. That's at um, www.vietnamgroundzero.blogspot.com. And you can, there's pictures and things like that to prove I was actually there. I love that, by the way, I'm glad we got to talk about Vietnam because that's something we've never really talked about me and you. Well, I haven't really talked. I never really talked about it much. Um, I think my um, healing process from Vietnam was probably writing the books about it because I was detached from the books. Ah, I see. You know what I mean. I'm doing a fictionalized account of Vietnam, so it's different than that. The, the interesting thing about that, though, is, is one or two guys from my one of my units in Vietnam, mm -hmm. the, the 116th Assault Helicopter Company, recognized the descriptions of Kuchi that I had put in the, one of the books and wrote to the publishers and said, if this guy wasn't in the Hornets, he knew somebody who was. The Hornets being the company I was with. So I reconnected with my company from Vietnam at that point. Nice. Which was kind of interesting. Yeah. That doesn't happen very often, for sure. The other thing, the other thing is, and I'm sure people have done this, because I mean, I've done it too. You know, somebody tells me their stories, and I, uh, especially in the UFO environment, well, you're, you're claiming this expertise, you're claiming that you did this in the military. I would write to get the records the parts that were public to see if they were. And I'm sure people have done that to me. Oh, I'm sure. I, yes. It's, it's never been, it's never been a big secret that I was in the military, um, but nobody's ever really challenged me on it except one guy who hadn't checked the records and said, I'd done a book called the um, UFO Casebook back in um, 1988. And the publisher I, you know, I, on the, on the cover, it said, uh, you know, Kevin D. Randall, Captain U.S. Air Force retired. And when I saw the cover, I told the publisher, you've made a mistake. I'm not retired. That, that R meant reserve. And somebody wrote, wrote and was all angry and he had a big expose about me. And he said, because I was too young to be retired from the military. 
And I'm thinking, well, you've made two mistakes, pal. I could be medically retired, which negates the longevity clause. But since I wrote the book when I was 38 and I joined the Army when I was 18, I could indeed be retired. And I, I sent him my 214, a copy of my 214, and said, if you publish now, I'm going to sue you for malice. As you should. Because you know the truth. And that was the end of that. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure everything was settled after that. Water under the bridge. So if people write to get my records, they're going to find out, yeah, I was in Vietnam and yeah, I was in Iraq. So there you go. Kevin is legit, by the way, folks. If you were wondering, um, he's very legit. Look him up. That's kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Yes, that's the UFO, the UFO end of it. Yes. <laughs> Lots of UFO stuff there. And there's a, uh, I do, a, I host a radio show on the um, uh, X-Zone Broadcast Network that is probably airing about this time, as a matter of fact. Oh, my. Uh, we, we're recorded, but I have a, a player, a media player on my, on my blog, and you can connect to that. I think there's 177 different programs on there that you can listen to my interviews with various people from uh, 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 people like Jacques Vallée, for example, I interviewed Jacques Vallée and uh, uh, Don Schmidt, of course, and Tom Carey and uh, other people who are prominent in the field and some people who are not so prominent and, and people who have witnessed things. So you can scroll through that and pick up that um, on that. And then once a week, I do a quick segment on Coast to Coast AM about what's current in the UFO field. Very nice. So, yes. Let, let George know we've said hello. I <laughs> he knows who I, I am. Just speak to the producers, and then I come on, and George says, "You know, here's Kevin Randall." I say, "Hi, George. How's it going?" And he says, "Going fine." I said, "Well, here's what we have this week." There you go. Yeah, you so, got to go in and out. That's always yeah, fun to do on, the show. Get out. That's what. That's my motto. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, and um, how much time do we have left with you? Um, well, you wanted to do an hour, and it looks like it's about 12 minutes. Okay, we could squeeze a few more questions in really quickly here. And before I do let you go, um, what, what's been going on with our friend Mike Rogers? I don't know. I had him on my show, I think we did two hours uh, several weeks ago. So you, you can go to the blog, and you can listen to Mike Rogers talk about this. Um, I don't know what's what's going on, on with him. I, I had... Uh, uh, Jennifer Stein on the program just this uh, um, this should be the one that's airing tonight the one with Jennifer Stein but okay. it's, it's up on the blog okay and nice. we talk we talk a little bit about the Travis Walton case she did a documentary called Travis we talk about that yeah. we talk about Mike Rogers and we talk about some of the things he's said and um, it seems like he will make a very controversial statement and then then retract it I know he said on one programmer said to a, a documentary producer that the whole thing was a whole the Travis Walton abduction was a hoax. The abduction part was a hoax. The sighting was legit, but the the abduction part was a hoax. But he's re, he's retracted that. And you talk to um, I talked to Steve Pierce a number of years ago, who seemed to be aligned with Walton and what he said was true. And then Steve Pierce has come out with some different things going on. Steve Pierce was on the logging crew of Walton. So it's it's kind of that's not a good luck. Like yeah, but I th I think the point is the point is um, uh, I, I think Jennifer we talked about this at length and about her documentary on called Travis. So that um, and I brought I brought up some points that bothered me about the documentary. So for those of you who want to listen, it's the, I think it's the first one up in the queue. Well, Kevin, uh, I think I think this means I, I um, Kevin, I think this means we're going to have to call uh, Travis Walton and see what's going on. 
I have tried, I've reached out to him a number of times and apparently somebody said something mean about me to him and he won't respond to my, uh, my emails. Don't worry, um, um, Kevin, don't worry. I'm going to get him on here and I'm going to bring you on and you could confront him yourself. I'm kidding, by I don't, the way. See, but that's the thing. I'm don't joking. I'm joking. I know. I know. I'm just you know, teasing I want, you. I wanted to. I wanted him to come on to, to chat about some of these things that have been said and going on. There was a big, big conflict going on yeah. in June of this year between Travis Walton and, and Mike Rogers. Correct. Yes, and, I, I was and, just. And mm-hmm. I did. I communicated with both of them, and I got responses from Travis Walton, and he, he said nice things about me and his in his response to me. And I said, you know, I, I realized it was something that was personal between the two of them that really had nothing to do with UFOs or the abduction. Yeah. It's probably and a I personal said, matter. Yeah. I, I said at this point, you know, I'm, there's, I'm going to bow out of this. I mean, I'm intruding on this private argument between these two. And that's probably what it is. Actually. It's probably a personal conflict that goes back years ago. And, and, you know, that was the thing. I just didn't want to, I said, I don't need to be involved in that. Yeah, then, you're right. You know, I saw the thing where Mike Rogers, Mike Rogers made a big deal about how nobody saw Walton abducted. And I'm thinking, why are we bringing this up now? We all know that, you know, nobody saw him abducted because you chickened out and drove you away. Drove off. Yeah. Well, I actually had an argument with Peter, Peter Robbins about that. Cause I, I said, I you know that was a pretty chicken thing to do. And he said, well, I, I can understand that. And I'm <laughs> thinking, well, as a combat veteran, we didn't leave anybody behind. Yeah, that's right. Um, maybe that's my thinking. And it, I wouldn't have, driven off and left my left my friend laying in the dirt same here yes i'm I'm many things in this world but um a coward and someone who leaves someone behind that's not who i am well i yeah and and but peter made a good point that you know a lot of people aren't of that mindset no no that's true and they don't have the training i mean that was the one thing we learned we don't leave your don't leave anybody in 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 behind and then, you know that was the other thing you know people say well did you have problems with race in vietnam and i said no there was only one color od green that's correct that's right we um, didn't care we didn't care who it was on the ground if an american soldier needed help we were going to do everything we could do to help that american soldier we didn't care about his ethnicity or his racial identity that's right we just wanted to go help our fellow soldier yeah you just want to get the hell out of there as well and by the way in mike rogers defense i mean it was you know, it was something foreign in the sky that scared the hell out of them. So, you know, we got to give them a little bit of, um, little bit of leniency here. Well, I've actually, I've actually confronted him on that. I said, you know, I was pretty chicken thing to do. <laughs> That's funny. You told him that. Oh, absolutely. And again, I told him that on the air on my program. So you scroll Ooh. down to the Mike Rogers one. And at some point, <laughs> I, you know, I, I talked to him about that. Did he get mad at you? No, no. Oh, okay, good. Um, you know, but I mean, that was just my attitude. I just can't believe you'd leave your pal behind in a, that situation. Yeah, you did leave him behind. That, that's that's kind of amusing. In hindsight, in hindsight. Side, they did go back after 15 minutes and Travis had disappeared. But I mean, the point simply is, yes, I, just, I, I just found that a little bit uh, on the chicken side. I hear you. No, well, yeah, you're, you're, you're partially correct. I'm not saying you're wrong. You're, you're not wrong. And, um, Moving forward here, you know, we were talking about, you know, people making these crazy claims and, you know, there was one name that came to mind and that's um, Gary McKinnon. I'm, I know you're very familiar with him and his story. Well, but you see, I don't think Gary McKinnon is quite the hoaxer that people want to believe. I did a book called UFOs in the Deep State. And if we look at the world situation today in the United States, the deep state is everywhere. I mean, it's the shadow government. It's the idea that we have an elect, elected officials in the executive branch and the legislative branch, and they're supposed to be running stuff. 
But then there's all these bureaucrats that, that are there from administration to administration to administration, and they're not really beholden to anybody, and they're kind of controlling things. And so when I was doing UFOs in the deep state, I was looking for the idea that there was a secret space program. Yes. And then they found evidence there was there was a, a secret space program that was canceled, I think, in the 1990s. But McKinnon talked a little bit about that and the stuff that he had found. And so I looked into that a little in a little bit greater depth to find out exactly what's believable and what's not believable. That's all laid out in UFOs in the deep state. Very nice. And of course, people can find that over at kevinrandall.blogspot.com. Read about it. That's a book you got coming up pretty soon here. Well, UFOs in the Deep State is out right now. Oh, it's out now. And, and uh, you, can, you can go to Amazon and buy it like right now this minute, and it'll be delivered to your iPad or your, your Kindle or whatever the hell you have. Um, the book's coming up is the Project, uh, Project Moondust. I wanted to call it Project um, – Brad Sparks had given me a great name for it. Um, like about it uh, because we the, the the idea is there really was no Project Moondust. Moondust was the code name. So you would get a project officer, you'd be the Project Moondust officer, but that was the code name. There was not sort of a centralized product project. And and so in the updated version of Project Moondust, I go into all of that and explain how that all all worked. And I wanted to call it uh, something else, and the publisher wanted to keep the Project Moondust name, so it's now Project Moondust updated. So it's been thoroughly updated to the to 2021 from from the uh, 20 years ago that the book was originally written. It's going to have new stuff, a lot of new stuff, and it's coming out in March, I believe. And then there's a book on Leveland, which with the sightings near Leveland, Texas, in uh, November, where cars were stalled and. Um, engine, uh, engines quit, obviously, and uh, lights went out, and there were people at multiple locations reporting the same thing to the sheriff, and there's some, I think there's some very interesting revelations in that book that's going to surprise people about the way the Air Force handled that uh, that situation and what, what people really saw and what re- really happened there. But it's all laid out in a book, which is cleverly called Level Land. Very nice. Well, once again, I do want to thank you, Mr. Randall, for being a part of the program. Always fun to chat with you, and we will do it again very soon, Kevin. Okay. Well, I'm here most of the time, and if I'm not here, then I'm somewhere else. Very nice. Well, once again, thank you so much, and we'll talk again. Okay. You have a good day. You too. And there he goes, boys and girls. Once again, thank you so much for pressing play. We will talk to you again very, very soon. And with that said, the world is a mysterious place, and life itself is a mystery. Until next time, good night. It's exactly what it seems. Wake up today just to lay back down and say, I won't be coming back. Let's call it a heart attack Give me some of that knack This is just a final payback They all flipped on me Took my passions, left me be When I had a place to sit Goddamn attitude to fit Talk real smooth, new way to spit Things have changed and I have quit Nothing to look forward to But a backlash full of lies You're too late Where you're going This is fate The whistle's blowing It's much too late It's all too late You're, you're much, much too late. late Like a piss hole punk With his nose to
not forget the Scarface prick. Rifle is fixed to your face. He dropped out of the subhuman race. Welcome to the Ohio Hauntings and Legends podcast. We will be taking you to places you have never dreamt of going. Hundreds, if not thousands, of haunted and abandoned locations. We will visit with the paranormal from your nightmares and try to understand the unexplained. Ohio alone has 88 counties within our state, and virtually each one of those counties has a story to tell. Ohio's history is bloodstained throughout its history. We will be covering more than just Ohio. We will cover the state you live in, the country. Trust me. There are thrills, chills, and we are upping the fright factor with each new stop we make. We will be traveling the world, the globe, looking for the strange, the mysterious, and the frightening. Mostly, we will find the unexplainable. Many of these episodes are genuine. Others are legend or hearsay. Believe those that you choose or believe in none. It is your choice. Just get comfortable. Sit back. Dim the lights and listen.